Uh, yeah, today I have with me uh, Jonathan Farbowitz. He's a fellow in the conservation of computer-based art. He assists at Guggenheim's conservation department in addressing preservation needs of computer-based works in the Guggenheim collection. He also supports the development of best practices for collecting these kinds of artworks. Uh, he's also worked on the restorations of Shu Li Cheng's Brandon, uh, which is from 1998 to 1999, and John F. Simon Jr.'s Unfolding Object, which uh, is in 2012. He holds an MA in Moving Archiving and Preservation from NYU, as well as a BA from Vassar College, and also has previous experience in software development and testing. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I guess just some background. Um, I interviewed Wendy before, and she's part of this cohort for preservation, and she, um, I guess, got me a lot more contacts to talk mm-hmm. with. And uh, I think everyone does different things, um, and so you're focused on artwork. Um, I guess, uh, and then I realized that I've never been to the Guggenheim. <laughs> I live here in New York. Uh, so I, I guess I just reached out to you, um, and I went on two days ago with uh, some friends. Um, so I, it was just good to, you know, have like actually go there, even though we're not really going to talk about the museum itself. But it's good mm-hmm. to have the context. Just, just yeah, for of course, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so thanks for getting. <laughs> yeah, that. you're welcome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we should start off just some intro on like, you know, what what are kind of the goals that you'd say of museums, um, and then what about Guggenheim specifically? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, I just want to add quickly. Um, so Wendy and I are both part of the same cohort. It's the, um, fostering a community of practice, uh, software preservation. And it's, it's, um, a project of, uh, a affiliated project of the software preservation network. Mm-hmm. So the Guggenheim along with, um, Georgia tech is also, uh, they're, we're part of the cohort. So a bunch um, of like universities and yeah. Museums. So it's mostly university libraries. Um, right. We're the only museum okay. in the cohort. Nice. Um, but just to to get back to your question, um, so I'm part of my fellowship is part of the conservation department. Mm-hmm. So as a museum, we collect all these artworks. You know, they're part of our permanent collection. The idea being that. Um, they're they're held by the museum and they could be loaned to other institutions in the future or exhibited mm. at the Guggenheim or um and that they're they're held in trust that um the public is going to be able to do research about them is going to be able to see them in you know indefinitely Definitely. into the future it's a huge um, responsibility <laughs> it is a huge responsibility yeah mm-hmm. and and not not taken lightly by any museum um and so um, my fellowship was created specifically to focus on computer-based artworks within the Guggenheim collection. Yeah, I guess based off that, um, when did, I guess, has your position been around for a while and how long has it been? My position been? is relatively new. Um, so I've been at the Guggenheim for about two and a half years um, through what we call the CCBA or the Conserving Computer-Based Art Initiative. Mm-hmm. So that initiative began um, a little bit before I started. Okay. Um, so it started around 2014. And uh, so we had um, Joanna Phillips was the mm-hmm. conservator um, of time-based media at the Guggenheim. Um, 
at that time. And she started collaborating with Dina Engel, who is a computer science professor at NYU. So Joanna and Dina started looking at computer-based works in our collection. And um, so you already had computer-based works already. Yeah. So our first, our first work um, was collected in 1989. Okay. It's, um, an untitled work by Jenny Holzer. Mm-hmm. So Jenny Holzer works with a lot of LED signage, mm. and this particular work um, was part of her show at the Guggenheim. And it's an LED, um, an LED sign that goes up the entire spiral oh, wow. of the rotunda. It's nice. it looked. I mean, I didn't see it in person, yeah. but it, it looked amazing. And that was our first computer-based or software-based work. Um, Maybe I should also define mm-hmm. computer-based works. Yeah, so that can be computer-based kind of, artworks because it's yeah. not not always completely obvious. So, um, what we classify as a computer-based or software-based artwork is one where software is integral to the work um, being exhibited. So, you know, we get a lot of artists now who are using software, let's say, to edit a video. Mm-hmm. But the final, the final artwork, the final product that comes to the museum is just a video file. Okay. So that's not considered a software-based work. Um, a software-based work would be the artist either wrote software that is executed on a computer in the gallery, mm-hmm. or the artist created a website as artwork, or the artist um, created something like a custom microcontroller in the middle of an installation and the microcontroller might do things like run a conveyor belt or, um, you know, um, like if someone comes close, it might like turn on some lights or Mm -hmm. move something, um, or play some audio. So, um, and those are works where software is is really integral and is being used as a creative medium. Right. Like Um, the medium itself versus like, I'm just taking a picture of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, um, like all, all the editing software now is all on computers for photos, for, for video, but that's, that's considered kind of separate from software-based artwork. Right, right, right. That makes sense. How many pieces of digital art are you in, or I guess, I don't even know what the word is taking care of right now. Yeah. How, how many, um, pieces that are in our collection? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the number keeps growing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, um, We've had a, uh, a we have about thirty actually. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, and how many is that compared to uh, the physical art? Other museums or oh, oh physical art. Yeah. yeah. So um, and you know and computer based works are physical in a lot of ways True. as well. Um, but in terms of sculpture and painting, paintings, yeah. I mean this is a small yeah. small group of artworks. Yeah. Um, and we have about 300 um, time-based media artworks. Yeah. So time-based yeah. media means um, anything that uses duration as part of the artwork. So hmm. included in time-based media would be things like video art, um, film, um, audio-based artworks, and software and computer-based artworks. Um, so we have, we have 300 artworks that are considered time-based media. And... Um, of those, you know, of those 300, about 30 are software-based. So it's, mm-hmm. again, a small okay. small subset. Um, most of our time-based media are video works okay. for the most part. Um, so, but again, like, um, 
unlike sculptures and paintings, computer-based artworks are highly vulnerable Mm. because with a painting, um, it's possible that if you store the painting in the right conditions, you can pull it out in a couple of decades and, you know, you still have a painting. As before. Um, With a software-based artwork, if you put a computer in storage that ran certain software, if you pull it out in 30 years, I mean... Who knows what's going to happen? Good luck, yeah. <laughs> it um, could be a lot of issues. So these these are particularly vulnerable because of hardware and software obsolescence. Mm-hmm. And we have to um, come up with strategies to deal with them, like basically right as we acquire them. Right when you know about it. Yeah. So in the case of, um, you know, Jenny Holzer, mm-hmm. um, that was a work where, um, you know, there, there were different standards, there wasn't really practices in place for collecting computer-based right. artworks in, in 1989. There, there have been a couple of works collected in the past where, as part of my fellowship, I've had to go back and talk with programmers and technicians because, mm-hmm. again, like in, in, the, in those earlier years, um, there weren't necessarily standards for what you need, the, the kinds of things you need to collect when you collect computer-based artworks. For example, source code. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, docu- certain types of documentation, um, things like that. It kind of reminds me that, um, like, sometimes the newer the technology is, the easier it is to be obsolete. Obs- like, oh, to absolutely. Be obsolete, right? And it's like, yeah. and it's funny because we're all chasing this new tech stuff when we're using it. But right. we never, we're not like changing, shifting our attitude to be like, oh, how do we save this thing? And I think. Especially like programs, not a lot of not a lot of people are thinking how long is this going to last. It's more like I want to like get my thing out there, get it used by a lot of people, and then hope that because I have money, then it'll stay around for a long time. But then you know companies fail, you yep. know software, you know right? Like we we use this phrase like bit rot, like stuff like that, and like even on the internet, like links they disappear or mm-hmm. web servers go Their down. Links, yeah, um, yeah, that seems really hard to do, right? Um, so I guess yeah. How would what are kind of the main ways of preserving digital stuff? Yeah. So um, I think you stated the problem really well, um, mm-hmm. especially for um, some some works that we have are web artworks. Mm-hmm. So you know the whole purpose of web artworks is that they're available twenty four seven on the internet. Anyone can see them. You don't have to go to the museum. You just go to the URL, right. and you should be able to access them yes. and interact with the artwork. One hundred percent of time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. In theory. <laughs> um, and then you're so, like, and then we, like you see like Google, Google Calendar went down like you know a few weeks ago. It's like um, all these different artworks need to be available too. So it's like, how do we? like, you know, sustain that. Yeah, and also um, as conservators and archivists, we're kind of um, tethered to these technologies that we don't have much control over. (laughs) You know, we can't tell Firefox, like, don't deprecate this thing because, like, this artwork depends on it. Um, I mean, you could. I mean, but they're not necessarily going to listen to us. Yeah, exactly. And so we're, we're kind of at the mercy of of um, companies and technologies that are going to change, um, you know, without mm-hmm. letting us know even. Um, so it's, yeah, that's, it's a very, that's a really interesting point though. Yeah. Um, I, so because I work on uh, Babel, right. And that's uh, a project that's involved in JavaScript itself. 
mm-hmm. to shape the future of the language. And um, you know, before people would, the only people on that committee of people, the standards body, are the language designers. And eventually, we have implementers, the people that create those JavaScript engines in the browser. And then now we have more practitioners that actually write JavaScript. And maybe we're trying to add in educators. And it's like maybe we need to add in like archivists and to, to I, the committee. And yeah, so I think say, that would be because, great. Yeah. yeah, because you know a lot of times all the developers are like, no, just break the web and just like get rid of all this stuff. Um, and people like to use the example of like, I think it was the, um, I, f- I forgot it was like NBA Jam or some, some website, right, that they want to conserve. And it's like, oh, Space Jam. Space, oh, yeah, yeah Space Jam. it right. looks exactly, almost exactly like it did, I guess, yeah. when the movie came out. Yeah. Um, and the committee, they they like this idea of like one JS. There's only one version of JavaScript. There's no, you don't have to specify different versions. It's mm-hmm. It should always be backwards compatible. But what they do is, Sometimes they kind of subtly break things when they try to... Uh, what they do is they'll implement the thing and then test it out, and if it starts breaking things, they'll revert it back. Mm-hmm. But if it, if it goes through and not enough people complain, then it will just technically break it because no one's actually using it. Well, how do you know sure. people aren't using it? What if they're not online? What if yeah. the artworks are, are using those yeah. things? And There's what, a web artwork from yeah. the 90s that uses that thing that just got deprecated, mm-hmm. um, but, but nobody's necessarily there to notice. Right. Um, yeah, and and artists artists who make these kinds of artworks, they're usually working kind of at that edge of how the technology is supposed to be used. You know, they're mm. often like hackers where they're using, you know, they're using the technology in ways it wasn't necessarily intended to be used. So in in those cases, it's very easy to break um, <laughs> the types of ways they're implementing JavaScript or right. um, HTML. Um, or you know other technologies. That's cool because yeah, they're just reflecting what was the thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And and then how do we? Yeah, I guess yeah. How do you preserve that? Somehow? So um, in terms of like practical measures that we take, so a big part of my fellowship, and this was was kind of the main reason for the fellowship mm-hmm. um, that the funds were raised and and they brought me on was um, to do a comprehensive survey and backup of computer-based artworks in the collection. Mm-hmm. So basically going through each work and saying, okay, what data do we have? How can we back up that data? How can we catalog that so future conservators understand you know, what these files are, how they relate to the artwork? Um, so, And then also, um, as we, we looked at each work, um, looking at what are the vulnerabilities mm-hmm. for the future, and is there any way we can mitigate against those vulnerabilities? Right. And so, then when you say vulnerability, you don't mean like security vulnerability, but no. actually like making sure this thing will last. Right. right. Yeah. So for example, um, you know, one artwork that we have um, color panel um, by this artist uh, named John F. Simon Jr. So this artwork's from 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a disassembled PowerBook 280C computer, okay. a laptop that he he basically, um, John Simon disassembled it and mounted it on um, this acrylic board, and it's supposed to be hung like a painting. Mm-hmm. And the PowerBook runs software that he wrote that shows all these different color patterns. It's based on um, Joseph Albers color studies, mm-hmm. and so it looks a lot like an animation. Um, but the problem is, like now, this disassembled laptop um, from I believe it became obsolete in 1995. Yeah. 
um, is now, you know, that is an artwork. Mm -hmm. And so you have that huge uh, hardware dependency. And of course, that hardware was never meant to last that long, very long. Yeah. So that's that's one way to look at it. Um, That when the hardware becomes art, then we have to think about, um, you know, what would be the right what would be the right course of action of course in conversation with the artist too right unfortunately he's still john simon is still around so we can we can discuss options with him about that in other cases you know it's um thinking about like okay we have a floppy disk we have you know a cd mm-hmm. let's just get the data off of those vulnerable carriers that can you know that are eventually going to degrade over time. So let's properly get the data off there and then put it in our digital repository, you know, more safe storage. Right. Um, and make copies, you know, make redundant copies of it. In that case, the floppy disk isn't the, art, the artwork itself, so it doesn't really matter right. if you get rid of it. Yeah. So versus the, the other thing. Yeah. So the floppy disk might just um, contain, like, the executable file that's mm-hmm. going to run the program. So the, the disk itself is not the artwork, but... It's a way that the code um, or the executable was delivered to the mm-hmm. museum, almost like a backup. Right, right. So, for example, for Color Panel, we have um, John Simon gave us the executable program that mm-hmm. runs on that laptop mm-hmm. on a floppy disk. So, right. we have that preserved. Right. But then, for that, given that that kind of computer won't ever be produced anymore, then if that if it doesn't turn on anymore, then you can't really. I guess now that question is like, what do you do with that? Then? Yeah. So, so um, uh, we, you know, we have to again like discuss with him and, right. and think about what some of the possible solutions are. I don't. I guess for that particular thing, it's like you, I don't know if you could like find another computer and make it, try to make it look the same, but that doesn't seem to be the same thing at all, really. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then then it becomes an um, an issue of yeah, even if. Um, you could obtain the same laptop, right? You know, is it the same thing if you replace the laptop? And I think that's a very, um, very interesting question. Yeah, there's no like, there's not really an answer there, other than right. if what like wanting to talk to the artist about right. what they think is yeah, reasonable. and and what what he considers the core of the artwork is mm. the core of the artwork, um, you know, the software that he wrote the the hardware, some combination of combination. both. Like, what's his what's his vision for what he thinks is important? Um, what's what's variable about the artwork? What um, what's what mu- what must stay the same? That's a like interesting question to ask in general because I feel like with with a lot of software, we don't really think that like what is the core of your software you know mm-hmm. people are just like oh it just works you know it's just right. a thing but then with <laughs> art it's like you you have that vision of mm-hmm. what you want people to see from this and stuff like mm-hmm. that i think that's really interesting for the fellowship so the survey and backup um and then also um we looked at how to acquire these things in a better way so um kind of and that for software-based works, that requires a lot of talking and, mm. and discussion with the artist up front about like one, like defining what the work actually is. Yeah. Um what what is the technical composition of it so that we can document that. We've we've even had programmers come in mm-hmm. and we'll do screen recordings where they will walk us through um the code that they've written 
um, and we're recording the screen and they'll show us like line by line what things are doing. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of um, artists use this software called Max MSP, which is like a, a multimedia, like usually for audio, um, like a lot of DJs use it for like audio collaging and stuff like that. So we've, we've had programmers go through and Max is a visual programming language. So they're actually going through the logic of their Max program for mm-hmm. us. And we're, we're recording that. So the whole idea of that is um, that in the future, if we wanted to migrate the um, program to another language? system or another language wow. other than Max, yeah, we have a reference for how, you know, the logic of it that we could, in theory, reverse engineer wow. um, the program. Yeah, that's really interesting. Again, like always, always like encouraging dialogue and mm-hmm. and um, work trying to work with the artist where possible. Yeah, that this seems like something where having the artist is completely necessary to oh, make this yeah. work at all. Yeah, and and luckily, like almost all the computer based works in our collection are contemporary works, mm. and the artist is still around right. and can answer questions that we have. Yeah, I think this gets to this question of like. Especially, we ask this a lot in open source. Like, what is open source? What's the core of open source? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the name, it's about code. But is it really? And it's like, is it enough for it to be about code? Or is it about the community and all this mm-hmm. higher level stuff around it? And I think it's the same question here where maybe it's not enough to just save the code for this art. Because clearly, um, what about, like, what was the vision and, like, the metadata and kind of... Uh, the process to make that thing because if you want to reverse engineer it, you would want to know like how you know how they were thinking about that right yeah and and we also want to record references so um if we have if we have the work installed in a gallery let's say and it's functioning properly that's like a really important moment to be able to document mm-hmm. as much as possible through photography through video we also want to document the process of actually installing it because a lot of these works are very complicated to install. Right. Um, and um, so we, we want to record that as well. We also ask the artist for, for um, comprehensive installation instructions so they can, they can give us what they think are the requirements for installing it. And uh, Joanna Phillips, who, mm-hmm. who used to work at the Guggenheim as the, the conservator of time-based media, she also developed these reports called identity reports and iteration reports. So the identity report um, talks about the identity of the artwork, like what, what's kind of the permanent identity of it. And the iteration reports talk about each um, installation of it. So that, that's considered an iteration. So um, in each iteration, there's always mm-hmm. some decision-making that happens, you know, like what how big is the room that it's going to be installed in or what's the lighting like or, um, you know, what projector is going to be used if it's projecting video or what speakers are going to be used if it's projecting audio or if it's playing audio and all of those decisions, um, get recorded in the iteration report and the, the reasons behind those decisions. So that's, that's super important for documentation of these time-based media works, including, software-based works. Right. That's just like all the context that Mm -hmm. we don't really think about. Even just for regular software, no one's saying like, I was writing this code in this place at this time, like all that. It's just like the code. And it's like a very like, very specific kind of version control of 
like the way this was presented over time, right? Like, yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, this was in a big room, now it's in a mm-hmm. small room, like something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then we look at, um, we even ask the artist often, you know, were you happy with this iteration? Mm. Were you not happy with this iteration? Um, and they tell us why. And then that gets recorded and that's in our, you know, in our records for the artwork. And we can, uh, you know, a lot of times with a, a new artwork and the different iterations, it actually starts to take on more of a kind of persistent identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we learn a lot about it in the first few iterations. Yeah, and I guess if we're thinking about like preserving things thing for the long term, I feel like in a way, maybe even, I wonder if the artwork itself basically could change or they, the artists themselves might like slowly change what they thought the core was. Yeah, absolutely. Through the process of working Yeah, that does it. happen right. sometimes, yeah. And, you know, as conservators, um, it's our job to record as much as we can about that, you know, about the, the changing of how the artist conceives it and, and things like that. Yeah. Like, um, I kept, I mentioned this a lot on all the podcasts I'm on now, but I've been reading this, uh, this work, uh, by a philosopher called, uh, Michael Polanyi. And he has this, uh, book that he's written called personal knowledge. And he talks, there's a lot of stuff that he talks about, but he talks about this concept of tacit knowledge, which is knowledge that you can't express, mm-hmm. but you know it. And the importance of, uh, people in, knowledge and learning and it turned I think in our current culture there's a lot of talk about separating the facts from people like the idea that you can just learn something and like just insert it into your brain kind of thing like the matrix yeah, like the matrix yeah. and so his point was that ultimately he would argue that you can't like remove like the information from the person that is providing the information so that in this kind of art sense it's like well, if we were able to somehow like mechani- like mechanically figure out what is the artwork, and then you could like not have that person doesn't have to be there, but that's tr- clearly not true. You can't, <laughs> right? Of course, yeah. Um, and there's just so yeah. much like we just talked about. There's so much there that like you can't even begin to express mm-hmm. what the artwork actually meant to that person. Um, and so, right? Yeah, I think that's like, yeah, really and and all of their, you know, yeah. There's there's no way we can just extract all of the artists. Um, thoughts about a particular work um, all, all we can best do is you know have a dialogue and mm-hmm. um, get their their particular thoughts at a certain time which you know are sometimes subject to change over time um, but yeah the best we can do is just record that um, and record you know the, the technical things are obviously easier you know we can make schematics yeah. we can record videos of the artwork functioning um, we can record, you know, videos with the programmer talking about the code. Those are, those are the easy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, harder, the harder part is, is getting to, um, you know, thinking about what parts of this, um, are, you know, can be altered. Um, what parts, what's not important, what yeah. matters to them. Sure. Yeah. I guess maybe, do you want to go into more detail on this, this idea of conservation like, what are the steps that you take to, you know, quote unquote, save something for the long term? Yeah. So, um, so I mentioned backup. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the simplest ways is we have this floppy disk, um, and then we have, um, a method that's called disk imaging. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of disk imaging, mm-hmm. but that's, um, 
a lot of times it's used by like IT professionals to create backups of computers. Um, it's basically, and, and it's also used by um, forensic investigators hmm. to create um, copies of digital information like as evidence okay. in a court case. So we use those same methods, but we apply it and uh, we apply it to components of an artwork. Um, archives and libraries also use the same methods mm. and they would, they would apply it to, you know, discs that come in from, you know, someone's personal papers or something like that, um, or hard drives that come in. So, so we have this floppy disk that's, you know, has the, the files related to an artwork. We create a disk image with it, which is a file that's a bit for bit copy of everything that's on that disk, a perfect, um, bit for bit copy. And we verify that it's an actual copy and then we take that disk image file and then we save it in our repository. And so, and then we get into just kind of basic digital preservation concepts, which mm-hmm. is, you know, we have to take that file, we have to make redundant copies of it and put those redundant copies in different places. Right. Um, and then we also have to check each of our copies periodically to make sure that no data has changed there's no um, bit flipping or, um, you know, anything like that. Right. You can use like a hash or something. Right? Yeah, we use, it, yeah, we use checksums or, yeah. or hash values, yeah, to verify that no, um, no bits have changed. Right. So that's kind of like just the baseline. Like that was the thing that they gave you, and I just want to make sure that that is preserved mm-hmm. as is. Right. And, then there's, and then moving forward, there's more like, oh, can we do something more with that? Yeah. So then... Um, you know, that's the baseline. Then we, we create, um, rich documentation Mm -hmm. about that file. So we, we record, you know, what's the significance of that file? Well, you know, let's say the significance is it's the executable file that runs the artwork. Mm -hmm. So we're going to record that somewhere. We're going to record, you know, um, we have photos of course of the disc that it came from. We're going to record obviously that the disc image file mm. came from that physical piece of media. Mm. So that's, that's important to maintain that relationship. And then we can, we can do sometimes some technical analysis. Like let's say we're doing a disc image of an entire computer. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do technical analysis of what are all the files on that computer. And we may have to also identify which files on that computer are, necessary to run the artwork and then in addition we have to identify the dependencies what's the operating system are there any other software dependencies is it dependent on a certain computer and certain peripherals so that's the kind of rich documentation that we have to add as well so that that's that's like you know one way to think about the whole backing up process and um then in addition to um backing up, then we also have to address stuff that's already failing. Right. Um, so I mentioned our web artworks. Mm-hmm. We have three of them. Um, so the first one was, you mentioned Brandon mm-hmm. in the introduction by Shuli Chang. That's mm-hmm. from 1998. Mm-hmm. And then we have two other artworks um, from 2002. Um, Unfolding Object by John F. Simon Jr., the guy who also did Color Panel. Mm-hmm. And we have Net Flag by Mark Napier. So again, as I mentioned, like they're all supposed to be available for anyone who goes to the website. Right. So um, when I started my fellowship, uh, these three works were 
already failing because um, you can imagine like someone wrote HTML in 1998. It's not necessarily going to work in contemporary browsers. It was, you know, written for like Netscape basically. Um, And so at the beginning of my fellowship, um, Joanna and Dina um, had decided that they were, we were going to take on Brandon Mm -hmm. as a case study and do a restoration of it. Okay. Um, and you already, because it was failing, you already evaluated that that's necessary. Yeah. So it was actually before um, I started my fellowship, there were NYU computer science students working under Dina hmm. who had already looked at the work and, and made like an inventory of the parts that were oh, not okay. working anymore. Oh yeah. And that's of course another part of the rich documentation is like, you know, having some sort of reference for what does this thing look like when it's functioning properly? (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's really important. So we were able to gather some videos of Brandon while it was still functioning so that we have that reference for, okay, it looks like this when it's working Mm. and we can, when we did the restoration, of course, we looked at those videos and images as reference. Right. So that verification is important. Yeah. So the the students made a, a catalog of, you know, all the things that weren't working with Brandon and then by the time I had started, um, this restoration project like had been kind of scoped out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had tried, um, previously they had tried emulation. There were problems with that. So, um, so how would that work for this case? Like emulation? running an old browser, you mean? Or? Yeah, basically running it in an old, in an emulated uh, old browser. Like a, you could use yeah. like a VM or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there were there were particular problems with that um, for this particular artwork. I know emulation does work for other artworks. It just um, wasn't working at the time in our case. Um, so we, um, the restoration team, decided on uh, a different approach, which was code migration. Yep. So Brandon used a lot of Java applets. I don't know if you're <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Java, familiar with Java applets. applets. Yeah. So that was this old plugin technology. Um, that isn't supported on modern browsers anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think Safari just recently stopped supporting it, okay. like the latest update. So we were basically like racing against At the, the end, clock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was this was um, the end of 2016, beginning beginning of 2017. So um, a lot of browsers, like Chrome, didn't support applets. So a lot of a lot of pages of Brandon, like where an applet would be, if if you looked at it in Chrome, you just wouldn't see anything. So you were actually missing parts of the artwork. And Mm -hmm. also it used a lot of outdated tags, Uh um, like the blink tag. Nice, blink tag. I don't know if you remember that one. (laughs) So so this is a case of we were talking about, you know, these, these, you know, committees that deprecate things. So they probably said, you know, we don't like this tag anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course they weren't necessarily thinking, oh, there are tons of artworks that use this tag. So the blink tag was deprecated. So parts of the website didn't blink mm. anymore when they were supposed to. <laughs> well, that's funny because I guess now you could make a blink tag using web components. Yeah. As so a, like, a, I don't know if you know the term polyfilling. Um, polyfill. No. Yeah. No. So basically it's, um, it's usually the opposite where if there's a new standard that's not actually standard yet. So before it's out, you can use it now and write kind of like the mock version of what it should be. So it, say there's a function that is going to be globally available, you could just do like whatever equals function and you're like substituting it in. So you could do that for Blink. 
Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So we had a particular way we did it, which mm-hmm. was um, our programmer, um, Emma Dixon, actually mm-hmm. wrote a JavaScript function that went through mm-hmm. and the code and looked for the um, blink tag. Uh, HTML tag. Uh-huh. And then what it did was, I believe she used CSS to basically like make it appear oh, and cool, disappear. Yeah. Right, right. So yeah, she wrote her the same own. Thing, though. Yeah, same thing. yeah, yeah. Nice. So, um, so it was. She called it uh, zombie code. <laughs> you know, it's like finding old code in there that doesn't work anymore and then reanimating it. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, every, we have legacy code everywhere, so this is like pretty relevant stuff. Yeah. Um, so with Brandon, you know, we, we decided we wanted to do this code migration and the Java code from the Java applets would be rewritten in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were very conscious about, we're not going to add any additional dependencies. Okay. Um, When we, when we do this, um, we were actually taking away certain dependencies. Um, so for example, like. Um, there was a there was a part of it that used um, a database, okay. but then the database like was based on a certain live event that happened in ninety eight or ninety nine. So of course that event isn't happening anymore. So right. people aren't adding to the database. So it's just static at this uh, point. Yeah. Uh-huh. So instead of requiring you know that you have this um, SQL database, like we just took the Sorry. data out and able to um, you know use JavaScript to um, work with that. So we were taking away certain dependencies where we where we could and where it seemed appropriate for the artwork. Seems there's like a lot of like there's leeway and restrictions and what you're actually able to like what language should you port it to and like how mm-hmm. you, like yeah. do you name things yeah. the same? I, that's interesting. Oh yeah of course yeah we had we had very strict standards about that. Mm-hmm. So you know this was for the museum, I mean, this was the first time that we were doing a conservation treatment on a software-based work, right. really. Um, so we wanted to be very conscious of observing conservation ethics. So, okay. and, you know, being yeah. um, reversibility, you can you can undo the changes without, you know, harming the piece in any way, mm-hmm. which is actually very easy for computer-based works because... In terms of re- re- reversibility, you just make a copy of the code, and you never touch the original code, right. and you can do whatever you want with this uh, this copy mm-hmm. um, without hurting the original code. So, reversibility, and then also um, making um, clear any of our interventions. So, like separating out any interventions from the original, and we we accomplish this through tagging code. Mm-hmm. In your commits and stuff like that. Yeah, and we use version control. We use Git. Yeah. Um, And then, so we have clearly delineated, you know, what's original code, what's the code that Emma added. Um, That's all, and and anyone can basically look at that and see what we did um, in the code itself. And then also documentation. So we wrote a uh, treatment report, um, basically of every intervention that we made and the reasons for it. Yeah, because I was going to ask earlier, I mean, you answered it already, um, just like what, are there certain norms that mm-hmm. you have and like, like code yeah. of ethics yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing? On that? Yeah, this was very new. So we were, you know, just kind of applying um, what we already knew, mm-hmm. the methodologies we were already familiar with and, and just seeing how we could apply that to web artwork. So, yeah, so reversibility, delineating the original from any interventions, and then also documenting 
um, any interventions. That was all really important. And also um, having documentation, like I said earlier, of the original before we made any interventions. Um, so we have a reference of, you know, this is pre-restoration Brandon and then post-restoration Brandon. So typically in, um, in art conservation, so if a conservator is working on a sculpture, they take before and after pictures. Yeah. So they, they'll take a picture of this is what it looked like before I did my treatment and then this is, you know, what it looks like after my treatment. This reminds me a lot of, um, like, in a company, you might decide to rewrite your whole code base. Mm-hmm. Or, or do you modify the existing thing? And there's a point where you're like, you think this code sucks so badly that it's <laughs> worth migrating. Basically, doing the same thing. And, like, maybe some of the ideas there are kind of similar. Um, like, they're always wondering, is it worth starting over? And then it gets into this question of, like, what should you conserve from the old code base? Where right, it's like, um, right. what about bugs? Right. Do you fix the bugs while you're doing it, or do you, or do you just mm-hmm. make everything look the same and then fix it later? Yeah, stuff like that. So um, there's also a concept in conservation called minimal intervention. Mm. So um, you only intervene or, or make changes as much as is needed to fix the problem. Almost kind of like um, if you think about like a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, if you have a certain condition, like maybe, you know, the doctor is going to do surgery, but maybe there's something before surgery that they can do, uh, so. you know, giving you drugs or something like that. So that would be like intervening only enough to solve the problem and nothing more. So we, we tried to practice that, mm-hmm. um, by saving as much of the original code as we could. So the code that still worked, we, you know, so yeah, a lot of a lot of programmers would like to start from scratch and just you know change it all. Um, but of course, we had to keep as much of you know our mandate was to keep as much of the original code as possible. And I remember uh, Dina said that often her students are her computer science students are mm-hmm. very um, you know vexed by this. Like they mm-hmm. would rather right. in some cases just like start over. But um, you know that just doesn't work for this this project um if you're if you're um, conserving artworks so right. you want to keep as much of the original as possible and then also um you know if there are any kinds of technical changes that are really going to affect the artwork um you know or or what we think of as the artist's um intent the way that they um program things we're always like looping the artist in to see how they yeah. would handle certain situations, things like bugs. You know, we, nobody's perfect. There's there's sometimes um, things in there that one would consider bugs, but you could also say that it's an inherent part of the artwork and that's how it was produced. And and often um, it stays the same. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. it's inherent to the artwork. Because it's like, it could be an opportunity to make it quote-unquote better, but is it, does that really... Yeah, that's generally question? not our mandate right, exactly. um, as conservators. Um, so in the case of Brandon, where, you know, when we were doing the code migration, the whole idea was um, to make it look and feel um, as close to the original as we possibly could mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, even down to, like this image is positioned, you know, with this many pixels on each side. And we looked at that and we're just, you know, we're going to keep it exactly in the same position. Um, That becomes harder when you have multiple browsers and, um, 
you know, browser standards are changing all the time. So um, it's something that, you know, for web artwork, you have to like have a way to, to keep evaluating whether um, it's still functioning properly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, I, I'm also reminded of like this, the idea of refactoring to your own code. And so a lot of times when uh, programmers, you know, they, they rewrite their code to do the exact same thing, but then the code is different and it's like more organized. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when people refactor, like the, a lot of, so one of the principles I've heard of is you shouldn't do other things while you're doing that. So like, they're like, oh, I can improve this thing here too. Uh, but then you yeah. start mixing things yeah. and it gets confusing. Mm-hmm. To review and also to write, um, and so I think it's kind of a similar idea of like kind of isolating that work and then doing mm-hmm. other work later. Um, but yeah, you just brought up this idea of. But yeah, like our, um, our purpose is like not to make something better. It's right. It's to make it as faithful to faithful, the original yeah. as possible. Yeah, definitely different goals. Um, and I guess you just brought up, you know, that there's you, you might have different browsers or different environments you have to adhere to. And that that reminds me of this idea in programming of testing, right? We have unit tests, integration tests, and it feels like if you want to preserve the the artwork to what it originally was intended for, it would be nice to have some kind of automated way of knowing mm-hmm. that it's quote unquote verified or correct. Yeah. Versus just like I took a picture, it kind of looks the same. If you're talking about like pixels and stuff, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess I should also add like. Um, it's not always necessary that it, it everything mm-hmm. be the same in terms of like position and stuff like that. Like sometimes it, depending on the artwork, it might be a case of more like preserving the intent right. um, or the vision of the artist. So um, in Brandon, you know, visually we try to keep it as you know, similar as possible. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, in terms of yeah, the, the unit tests and like, any kind of automated testing. Like it's something that I thought about actually quite a few times in my mm-hmm. fellowship. Like we should have some automated thing that alerts us if these websites are breaking. Like for example, um, Brandon had quite a few dead links mm-hmm. that it had accumulated since 1998. And we had to figure out ways to um, redirect some of those links. Um, you are know, again, two, in consultation with the artist. Right. Are those two outside websites that have, are down or internal? Or what, I guess... Oh, yeah. What are the dead So, um, I think one of them was... Um, well, one, one was an email address to an employee that no longer okay. works at the Guggenheim. Um, so, we, we changed that to something else. Um, you know, a more general address for that department. Um, again, like, um, that, was, that seemed like a, a good compromise... Because um, otherwise, I was thinking that you could those links. It's like, do you back up those things on your own thing? And then you oh, to, do you like back up other out. people's websites? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know that was a possibility, like using something like um, the Internet Archive's mm-hmm. Wayback Machine yeah. to point to historical web pages. Um, that was something that the artist didn't necessarily want to do. Okay. So, for example, there was one website that pointed to an organization that no longer exists. Mm. So their website isn't up anymore. So what we did was for that organization, we um, had it direct to um, NYU's fails uh, library has like an archive of that organization's papers. So we actually decided to point that link to the archive of the organization's papers. Yeah. So we changed that again. That was something that um, the artist was heard. 
suggestion and it, it seemed to make sense in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to hear ideas about ways to automate this type of monitoring mm-hmm. um, because, you know, um, if we could have like a more regularly scheduled way to to look at things or an automated way to look at things, um, that would obviously save me a lot of time. Yeah. Um, the, I guess the sometimes the problem is like, you know, for links and stuff, I feel like that could probably be yeah. automated, but, you know, if links, links die, but in terms of like, the, I don't know if you can automate a way to like look at different web pages and see like, is this looking right? Or, you know, is this, I um, guess, I don't know how you would do it either other than if you did the whole like specific pixels thing or you do screenshot testing. Where yeah. it's like you take a screenshot mm-hmm. and then you compare it. Is it oh with like fuzzy hashes or something? Or yeah. X percent different? Then mm-hmm. you should look at it kind of thing. Um, and then you could yeah. run like a con- continuous integration service where like it runs maybe it's every day. Or that whatever. is a very yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, yeah screenshots. Yeah, because we do that now for web like websites in general. Like that's one way people are trying to figure out. Um, but you know they change some kind of UI button and then is it different or is it expected? for it to be this way and then mm-hmm. stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Well, what about, like, what do you think about, like, interactive artwork? So, like, Unfolding Object. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you played with it. I did. Um, but, you know, you, you click on stuff and it unfolds and then it's counting mm-hmm. um, how many people right. clicked on each um, clicked on each facet. Right. So, Every time someone clicks on it, it adds another line. Yeah. So it, it's not, it's always different. Mm-hmm. I guess for that, that seems like more of a behavior thing. Where you, if, is there a way to logically know that oh, this line got added or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because given that this is um, artwork, it's very unlikely unless that person, I guess, knows a lot about engineering practices of them writing tests themselves. Mm-hmm. The artist doing it, and it's funny because then you would have to retroactively add in tests, which is normal for any kind of legacy code base. But a lot of times, a lot, you know, the current practice for a lot of people at companies is like, okay, or any open source project, right? You have your test while you write your code, and then mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. verify there's no regressions in the code base. So yeah. I think... And actually, I yeah. believe that that's something... Um, so our, we had a, we did a restoration of unfolding object as well, mm-hmm. and then that was actually something that our programmer was looking at mm-hmm. when he was writing his um, restoration code was doing like regression testing. Oh, okay. Um, and he, he included a bunch of test scripts in our, um, like in our final version of it so that someone in the future could go back and right. run the same tests. Yeah. It, it's funny. It reminds me of two things. One is, um, I kind of wish, so Babel is a compiler for JavaScript, mm-hmm. but if it was more true to its name, like, it actually converts any language to any other language. That would make this whole effort really easy. <laughs> if there was somehow, you found oh, some language yeah. that just literally yeah, converts yeah. it to whatever language you want, yeah. that would be pretty amazing. And so. I think, um, you know, at certain times we've looked at certain tools to, like, a tool to get Java to JavaScript, but, you know, since these are artworks, like, the degree of fidelity needs to be, like, pretty, really high. precise. Yeah. yeah. And in some cases, um, you know, maybe even if there is a better way to do something in JavaScript, we might not do it because mm-hmm. we would just rather have it Look um, like remain it. more faithful to the Java implementation. Right. So those kinds of automated tests, at least for artwork, seems seems 
or the, the kind of automated translation or migration seems like it would be difficult for our case. Yeah. Not, I'm definitely not opposed to, to, uh, you know, experimenting, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it seems like a, a very tough challenge. So mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about the browser is that JavaScript is the only language you can write in for right. a program language. But, so, uh, the community has been working on this new initiative called WebAssembly, which isn't really about the web and really isn't assembly, but kind of, that's what people <laughs> say, like, technically you don't have to use it in the web because you can use it in Node, and it's not really assembly, but it's a binary format where you can com- you can write all the other compilers to convert to this, and then the browser will natively run that code. Wow. And so it is a way for, not web projects, but, like, say someone wrote... Uh, artwork in C++ or something, and you wanted to run in the browser, you could compile that to WebAssembly and then run it in the browser for, to make it more accessible for everyone. Wow, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that could be an interesting thing to look into later where you have all these different languages and all if all these languages are able to support compiling to WebAssembly, then that would be really great mm-hmm. so you don't have to run those other um, uh, environments. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely something to look at in the future as it develops. Because mm-hmm. I know that most programmers like this because um, they don't want to write JavaScript. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I just talking to you about this now, it, it kind of feels like a lot of this is very interdisciplinary. Oh, definitely, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm curious because you, you know, in our intro, you know, you did all these you had a you said you had a film degree in mm-hmm. um, for undergrad, uh, but then you didn't ever. Did you formally learn CS? Because you you have a software background too. Yeah, and you kind um, of need this to do any of this, right? Yeah, so. I didn't. I didn't formally uh, get a degree in computer science. Um, basically, um, so I I had my undergrad in film, and mm-hmm. um, I worked in the film industry for a little while, um, working on a couple of reality shows and different things. Um, I did video game testing oh, for cool. a little while. Yeah. Like QA? For yep, it? QA. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a little while. Um, and then, so that that's kind of where some of the software testing experience comes from. Comes from. Yeah. That's funny because um, the podcast I just did before this one was um, uh, for the devs that made Slay the Spire, which is a Steam game. Oh, that's on oh, okay. uh, Switch as well now. And their background was also QA. Um, and then they're incorporating those kind of testing ideas into their game where, like, to balance... It's a card game, so they have to balance it, and they use, like, testing and data and all the stuff that they learned from the previous job. Oh, cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think um, having that experience with um, video game QA, like, it gives you a very particular mindset that I think is super helpful for, you know, any kind of um, work that I do now yeah. or... You know, if you're if you're looking at software, you know, you want to look at not just how people are supposed to use it, especially like if we're putting an artwork on the web, like you want to look at like, you know, what are the edge cases yeah. What are you know, how are people going to abuse it or, um, you know, how are people going to try and break it? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's some of what I bring to you. Um, like if I'm testing restoration code. Right. Because, um, yeah, I think that's the attitude in testing in general. It's not the the normal case, but those right. edge cases. Um, mm-hmm. And those are things you need to cover because the, the ones that are obvious, you, you can manually know that they're fine, but then it's all right. these other things, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember, like, 
in the game testing I did, like, you know, you're supposed to run this way to complete the mission, so you just you run the opposite <laughs> way and see what happens, see if you can crash it. So I had that experience, mm-hmm. and then um, I had a number of other jobs. Um, but uh, when I was in Philadelphia, um, I was working at this software company that did um, basically it's a they did web applications to help people apply for public benefits like food stamps and um, cash assistance mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Um, health insurance, like Medicaid, yeah. stuff like that. So they would they would create web apps for different states so that people could do these applications mm-hmm. that are, you know, to make do so they could do it in a less onerous way. Um, and so originally I was working as a um, copy editor for the software company. Okay. But being an editor there, you basically you have to go into the software and like make all the changes and they use version control and things okay. like that. So, so I was introduced that. to all that. And then um, so they had no formal training, and you just kind of learned it on the job. Yeah, okay. Um, learned it on the job, and then I became friends with um, a lot of people who were programmers there. And it's um, awesome. Yeah, and then I was um, I was laid off from that job, mm. and I was friends with one particular programmer, and we decided, you know, we were both out of a job. We decided we wanted to create a website, so I got a lot of experience and you know, what it takes to build a website through doing that. We created, uh, it's called Veg Philly. The, I, we, we took it down um, okay. maybe like two years ago, but it was originally like um, supposed to be a, a vegan restaurant guide for Philadelphia. I really love that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I got a lot of experience mm-hmm. through that. And then the same company that had laid me off previously, they there was an opening for um, a uh, programmer and... The same company? The same company, yeah. Oh, okay. And then, um, you know, my friend encouraged me to apply, and, and they brought me on as a programmer. And wow. So I did that for a while, and then I got interested in um, archives at the same time. Um, was there anything that happened? Or just- yeah, so before I was b- brought back as a programmer at the software company, I was working um, at this community video center in Philadelphia called Scribe. And Scribe... Um, has they've been making community documentaries for about the last I think it's like since the early 80s so you have tons of of tapes of you know these really really interesting um, documentaries about different political issues about different organizations within in Philadelphia the okay, in yeah, the city yeah. yeah and so they have all these tapes and um, at the time there wasn't necessarily like um, a plan so mm-hmm. this is back in 2013 mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily like a plan in place to preserve all of this stuff and make it accessible to the public. So uh, they've done a lot of work since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of those things that inspired me like, oh, um, look at, you know, there's all this like stuff, history content, yeah, yeah. yeah, on tapes and on hard drives. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we started at Scribe, we started sort of this informal archiving committee. And then I started looking at video and film archiving and I'm like oh there's a graduate program at NYU that teaches this and so maybe maybe I should you know do this program wow. and learn how to preserve this stuff right and, and it goes back to your back bachelor's in film too yeah right? exactly yeah and so when I went into the program I thought I would I would be a video archivist mm-hmm. that was kind of the vision but um 
I started to get more and more pulled toward digital preservation. And um, I even, um, in one of my internships, I worked on this open source video digitization mm-hmm. software called B-Record, um, which people still use to digitize videotapes. And so I was part of this development project and that was um, you know, also helping my coding skills improve as well. And um, yeah, I just started to get more and more interested in computer history. Mm. And um, I wrote my thesis on preserving computer viruses and other malware. And very so, interesting topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, which which uh, perhaps in a future episode we can we can get more into the mm-hmm. the meat of that um, of that research project. Um, but yeah, I was I was. Um, really, really starting to get into the digital stuff. And when I graduated, um, the Guggenheim posted this fellowship position and it just seemed like my skills really matched up well with um, what they were asking for. Um, And then I had also been, the Guggenheim hosted a conference. Mm -hmm. Um, This was my second year of grad school called Tech Focus 3. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was all about preserving software-based artworks. And, you know, it was when I was there, it was a real turning point where I saw like, Oh, like, you know, they want people who know how to use Git and know how to use <laughs> command line and can make disc images and, and know, know about emulators. And like, you know, I had previously yeah. a lot of this background and experience and it just seemed like, you know, there were all these great connections and I just, you know, I met a lot of great people there and um, yeah, it just seemed like I had a, a nice place there. Um, that I could really contribute to this field of computer-based art conservation. Yeah, the intersection of those two mm-hmm. fields. Interesting. You you said that you worked on an open source project. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I was. I'm also curious. I guess two different things, but I had a question around. I mean, this is more of a just like off the top of my head, but it's. I think it's interesting that with this kind of more interactive art, and because maybe the code is open there is an opportunity for people to build off of that. We had this idea of like remixing art and stuff like that versus mm-hmm. like with the traditional art, you wouldn't necessarily do that. Um, do, do you see that happening at all? Or I don't know. If, that's not really your focus or anything, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I do see cases of artists, um, you know, artists might take code that's in the public domain and use it in one of their artworks. So I've definitely seen that. Um, I've seen, you know, artists like kind of encourage people to remix or mm-hmm. reuse their code. Um, there's definitely that as well. Um, it's a little, it's a little bit beyond like you know simply you can fork a project, um, which a lot of open source is just tools. But with art, it's like mm-hmm. you can tweak little you know variables or parameters here and there, and it'll look very different. And I think um, even for just teaching and for kids, I think that's a really interesting opportunity too, mm-hmm. right? Because um, a lot of, like, say, Khan Academy, they have a lot of, like, you know, with processing and those kinds of languages, it's, like, all around art and being able to tweak things. And yeah. Learn. I mean, one thing with the um, with the restoration of Unfolding Object, um, it was important to the artist that the code be, um, you know, easily readable to anyone mm. who goes to the site. So, you know, one of the things we could have done would be to, like, minify the... JavaScript, yeah. um, and because the artist said, "No, I want people to be able to see this," um, we chose not to do that. 
So yeah, and and in Brandon again, we wanted to make everything that we did transparent. So we have all the tags in the HTML about where the new code is and where the original code is. Um, yeah, I guess that's around accessibility. Well, then I wonder, like, well, the other option, you know, you could just link to GitHub, or if assuming you could put it on GitHub, mm-hmm. um, and then because like minifying in the end is mostly around saving space, right? So. I guess it depends on how you want to do that. So. I was thinking with Brandon, part of Shu Li Chang's vision was that she wanted people to keep contributing to this website. Oh. So um, so it was called, it's called Brandon, a one-year narrative project in installments. So over the course of that year, she was like holding events and she was collaborating with different artists and programmers and artists were actually contributing to the site. During the time. During the time, mm-hmm. yeah, during that one year. And actually, even a little bit after, too. Um, but she had this um, part of the website called the Panopticon, which is supposed to be like a Panopticon prison. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a prison where you have this central watchtower and you have all these cells on the outside. Shu Li's idea was that um, the you could have different artists kind of occupying the cells. So, you know, it's kind of almost like an artist residency online where <laughs> they would contribute um, gifts or text or images to one of the cells right. that would be their cell. Um, so that was one of the ways she encouraged people to contribute. And then also at one of the events, um, you could, um, anyone in, who was attending the event could submit a headline and then those headlines were basically like scrolling. Oh, through the um, screen. Okay. Yeah, it was this event that was simulcast between uh, New York and Amsterdam. Mm. So the Guggenheim Soho in New York and um, the um, De Waag Center in Amsterdam. And it was basically like this lecture. Mm-hmm. They had different speakers from each side. And so, you know, people were sending these headlines back and forth and sending images back and forth. I mean, for the time, for 1998, it was, you know, pretty, pretty novel. Um, Now we think nothing of it, but this was kind of the beginning of these kind of simulcast events. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious now because, like, there's obviously more and more artwork being created over time. And then, and I mean, I could ask the question, like, what should we preserve or conserve? And the answer is probably going to it would it idealistically would just be all of them, right? And so I guess I wonder how people can help with this kind of thing. Or is yeah, it, it's like a question. Because then the question is like, is it up to you and all the archivists to do all this work, or mm-hmm. can people be involved? And this question open source yeah. is the same. Where like yeah, as a maintainer, yeah. is it our responsibility to provide this free software to all these developers and companies mm-hmm. and do it for free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in my case, I only have to deal with what's in our collection right. in terms of preserving it. Um, you know, other museums deal with their collections. And then there's also um, this organization, Rhizome, that has um, their collection of um, net, mostly net art. Um, and they're actually developing a lot of really interesting software to deal with some of the problems of preserving net art in their collection. Um, so they, they came up with a web recorder, which is a piece of open source software that allows for interactive web archiving. So, you know, a lot of web archive, web archiving software, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's automated. It'll just go out and it'll 
bring in the pages, but for the modern web, like you have a lot of different interactive stuff. Oh, dynamic the, stuff. Yeah. yeah, and the web crawler doesn't know how to deal with that. So they created, so Rhizome created um, Web Recorder as a way to, um, basically it's like a window and you're interacting with the website. And as you interact with it, it's recording all the data that mm. comes in. And then, and then packaging that up in a web archive so you can access it later. Um, so yeah, I would say like the way that like open source developers and, and software developers in general can really contribute to this, I think in a great way is through like developing tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we try to use open source tools where available. Um, record was um, a tool that was um, originally developed as part of the open source committee of the Association of Moving Image Archivists. Mm-hmm. So um, we we tried to make it a tool, like, um, you know, by archivists for archivists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because there's a lot of commercial software out there for digi- digitizing video, but, you know, it doesn't meet certain needs that we have. So that was the impetus for um, V-Record because we didn't want to be dependent on, oh, this version of Final Cut Pro doesn't do the thing we want it to do anymore. Right. So um, we were kind of striking it out on our own. And, um, you know, there, there have been a lot of people that have contributed um, to V-Record, actually too many to name. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the major uh, developer has been Dave Rice at CUNY TV. And so my internship was at CUNY TV and mm. I was working with Dave to add features to it. Um, and you can you can see it on GitHub, oh, and yeah. um, and and that's still being used. Um, but you know things like you were talking about the type of automated testing stuff. I mean that would be a great tool for people who have to deal with a lot of web artworks, for example. Um, some way to look at screenshots and can you figure out if an artwork you know is, is functioning properly or not via screenshots or via via other types of testing that's automated because, you know, we have a collection of three web artworks. Other people have collections of, you know, potentially hundreds of web artworks. Um, And, and, you know, they want to figure out if they're working or not, or, or figure out some way to intervene if they're not working. Um, But they don't necessarily have the time to go through, you know, hundreds of websites. So um, yeah, I think tools is very important, but you know, with the, these open source tools that we use in the archival and um, conservation community, we also get into this problem of maintenance, mm-hmm. you know, of these tools. Right. Um, you know, luckily we have a lot of people who have institutional jobs and the institution supports them working on that particular piece of software, which is, which is great. You right. know, they have a stable job. They're not, necessarily dependent on me record, you know, being popular to keep their job. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also, you know, media info, which is another open source software that's been super, super helpful for archivists and conservators. And what media info does is you feed a file into it and it gives you usually a video or an audio file. It does image files as well. Um, But you feed the file into it and it gives you all the technical metadata about that file. So What's the what's the resolution? What's the frame rate? What's the duration? What codec is it in? Things like that. But but of course, yeah, we need we need ways to maintain that. I know in the case of media info, um, I don't remember remember exactly what the structure is around it, but I think there's um, there's like kind of a core group around it 
a um, couple of core developers. Um, and then there's, there's some institutional support. So, you know, um, different institutions that use this software can kick in, you know, a certain amount to keep it going. But I think, yeah, in terms of like how outside programmers could help, I mean, definitely in terms of tools, emulation tools mm. would also be like definitely an area where um, I think we need more, uh, more development as well. Yeah, I would like to talk to someone that does that. That's something I don't know a lot about. Yeah, there's another big project um, called Emulation as a Service, or EAAS. Mm. And that's a, that's a really big project right now in archives and museums. Um, there's um, this project called EASY, which is um, at Yale University currently. And it's a way of making, trying to make EAAS um, accessible to larger groups of people to like mostly universities, I think, to try and um, use that emulation service to make different software they have in their collections accessible to the to the public or, or more um, more generally accessible. So EAS, the idea, it's like cloud-based emulation. Mm-hmm. So you basically just point someone to a URL and then, you know, they're just going to that URL, but in the background there's, you know, a server spinning up an emulator mm-hmm. and it's going to run whatever software you have loaded on there. And then they're just going to, the user is just going to see things in a browser window and they right. don't really have to like set up the emulator or anything like that. So it's, it's really great for, um, for making, making an artwork could be an artwork, could be, you know, someone's personal papers. It could be, mm-hmm. um, you know, could be someone's uh, in, like a, an emulator with somebody's old computer that you could browse the files, um, any of those things. It could be an old CAD drawing of a building, um, mm. but making all that accessible through cloud-based emulation seems like a great initiative um, for archives and museums. Yeah. yeah, I think that might be a good place to, to end it. Um, okay. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or bring up we didn't cover? I mean, there's, there's always tons yeah. to cover, but okay. I think we, we covered quite a bit. Okay. And um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for having me as a guest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, we also, like, as, as someone who uses a lot of open source software, like, um, you know, I really do appreciate all of you maintainers out mm-hmm. there and uh, who are working in the trenches um, often, you know, dealing with, like, a thousand GitHub issues mm-hmm. and everyone thinks that they're going to get their issue solved like in two seconds. Yep. And that, you know, it's, um, yeah, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm sure it's, um, I'm sure it's very challenging, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's very necessary work. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, maintainersanonymous.com, for show notes and transcripts. If you have any feedback, ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pat. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash henryzoo.